start a podcast for the Justice Center because you guys are all over the news with the situation at UBC and Andy No. Why don't you tell us about that, John? Yeah, the Free Speech Club at UBC back in November obtained the university's approval to host a, an event with uh, Andy Ngo. And uh, Andy Ngo is a, his, his last name is spelled N-G-O. I don't know if it's pronounced No or Ngo. But he is the uh, editor at large for Post Millennial, and he's based in uh, Portland, Oregon. And he was actually uh, uh, covering a protest in June of 2019, and he was attacked by Antifa. This is a violent uh, group of people that that wear black masks and cover their faces and and physically disrupt and assault and so on and so forth. Um, so Andy Ngo was attacked by Antifa in Portland in June of 2019 and, and suffered injuries. And he was going to come to Vancouver, BC to speak at UBC. Uh, and his topic was understanding Antifa violence. And the university approved that event to be taking place January 29th, 2020. And then suddenly, just a few days before Christmas, UBC informed the Free Speech Club that they're reneging and the event is not allowed to go ahead. And the stated reason is, quote, safety and security, quote, uh, without further elaboration. So we believe, we have reason to believe that um, (laughs) UBC is afraid of Antifa violence. Therefore, they are canceling a presentation about Antifa violence. Right. Yeah. So this isn't unprecedented, though. This kind of thing has happened before. Uh, I know it was happening down at Berkeley a couple of years ago with uh, Milo uh, Yiannopoulos and uh, I think Ann Coulter. They they disrupt the meeting. And then I think even this is somewhat related to another story that's happening right now where there was just a judgment on, which was at the University of Alberta, where they were basically saying security concerns caused them to send a huge bill to the uh, pro-life group. So, I, I mean, this isn't unprecedented behavior, right? This is this is, seems like a tactic. What's well, becoming, account, council culture is becoming more common. And in some cases, it's driven by the, you know, Twitter, the Twitter mob or Facebook. Right. Um, but it is in a way even, I don't know if it's more or less, or I don't know if it's be, uh, worse or, or equally bad if the, if a university is responding to fears of violence, but whether it's violence or or whether it's the Twitter mob or whether it's sort of halfway between where people are kind of suggesting that there will be problems, it is becomes a kind of a vicious cycle because the more that the universities cancel events based on uh, fears of quote protesters, quote um, whether violent or nonviolent, the more that the universities cancel events based on fear and based on an unwillingness to uphold free speech on campus, the more 
likely it becomes that groups are going to use this method and you're going to get into more and more situations where, you know, if they see that it works, right, they're responding to incentives. Mm-hmm. If it's whether it's Antifa or whether it's a nonviolent group that's going to protest uh, in very disruptive ways, but that fall short of violence, mm-hmm. uh, the more that the universities cancel events, the more that these groups are effectively encouraged to engage in uh, tactics that violate the the right to speak as well as the right to hear and listen and right well it's it's blackmail in a way and it's also bullying so i mean it seems to me both those terms can apply here you know they they're bullying and they're saying okay if you uh, don't cancel this we're going to show up and start throwing cement milkshakes at you as they did uh, to uh, Andy down in Portland. Well, we saw it as well. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a threat. It's a threat. And, you know, another example is the uh, March 2017 shutdown of a speaking event at McMaster University in Hamilton, where Jordan Peterson was one of mm-hmm. the speakers. And the, the uh, McMaster University uh, Office for Equity and Diversity uh, announced uh, a few days prior to this event the, that Dr. Peterson was not worth listening to, which I think is sort of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, you know, it's a hint, go ahead and shut down his event. And then when he was scheduled to speak on Friday, March 17th, there were people uh, shouting uh, obscenities. They were chanting, they were ringing cowbells. They were uh, may have been, I don't recall if they were beating drums or not, but it was literally impossible for him to uh, to speak or for anybody to listen to what he had to say. And right. how this was addressed by uh, Patrick Dean, who's the president of the university, on Monday the 20th, three days later, he effectively uh, – first he said all the right things about freedom of expression. He said freedom of expression is the – uh, raison d'être of the university. It is the tool that we need to uh, pursue truth. It is the way for uh, idea for the best ideas to rise to the top. It is the way for falsehoods to um, to be exposed and uncovered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He just said all the right things, and the university is dedicated and committed to free speech, and you know we love the pursuit of truth, and on and on and on. He said all all the stuff that that. I agree with 100%. And then he went on to say that, um, you know, the behavior of those who disrupted Jordan Peterson's talk on the Friday, three days prior, was less than ideal. However, um, there it is, the big turn. He was quite pleased. You know, however, uh, they too had their right to express themselves. Okay. And this is, this is down to, you know, this is a level of stupidity that that is, you know, below a kindergarten level. Even kindergarten students understand that there's a difference between making your own painting or taking a sheet of paper and covering over somebody else's painting so that nobody can see the other kid's painting. You know, kindergarten student understands that there's a difference between speaking versus silencing somebody else and that silencing somebody else is not legitimate expression. It's a very, very simple concept. And I think the university presidents would maybe 
rise to the kindergarten level if their own you know annual fundraising banquet to thank the donors to the university was disrupted by people ringing cowbells and and shouting and beating drums and chanting obscenities maybe then the university president would call campus security and say you know escort these uh, uh, disruptors out of the room Sure. I think you're being way too nice here. I think they know exactly what they're doing. I don't think they're being kindergartenish at all. I think they know that they're being contradictory. They just don't care. That's my opinion. And uh, they're just, you know, trying to pat themselves in the back saying, oh, we care about this. But the pattern is there. It's happening right across Canada. It's happening right across the United States. We even call it canceled culture. You know, they know what they're doing. It's pretty deliberate as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, actions speak louder than words. So when you Mm. effectively allow the obstruction of events, the shutting down of events, and we see it over and over and over again, we had Christy Blatchford, uh, who at that time was with the Globe and Mail, and she had written a book called Helpless, which was about what the um, people in Caledonia, or maybe it's New Caledonia, I forget which, but people in Ontario where there were Aboriginal protesters that occupied property and and so on and so forth. And the police stood by and did nothing. She wrote a book called Helpless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, predictably, uh, she was denounced as some Nazi fascist. And when she spoke at the, um, she spoke at a university, the university slips my mind. It's, it's on our website, www.jccf.ca. But um, she was disrupted and shouted down. There were some protesters came on stage and started shouting. And what did campus security do? They stood by and watched. They did not remove these uh, loud, disruptive people from the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen it with a member of par- former member of parliament, Stephen Woodward. Uh, Stephen Woodward. Um, coming in and and uh, he's a very quiet, gentle, soft-spoken guy. He was doing a presentation um, on uh, something involving pro-life, and so you know, a bunch of students come into the room, uh, screaming and shouting, and campus security just stands by and watches. And the same thing at the University of Alberta, where we had a court ruling uh, on uh, Monday, January sixth, which I hope we'll get into a bit later. Uh, there's a stationary display on campus that pro-life students have set up and it's authorized by the university. It's a university event, so to speak, put on by a campus club. And there's this loud mob that comes in and effectively shuts down the display, shuts down opportunities for dialogue to take place, uh, takes away the right of people to see and hear and listen and speak. And campus security stands by and watches and no disciplinary action taken against students who, you know, very publicly, openly on Facebook bragged about having shut down a speech that they disagree with. Right. They so considered that success. They, yeah. they considered it a, a success. So with action speaking louder than words, uh, even though I admit I cannot get into the minds of these university presidents, but ultimately at the end of the day, there is a uh, – there's a serious lack of commitment to actually defending free speech when it takes some uh, effort and energy and sacrifice. 
Oh, you sure it isn't just a matter of right versus left? Because everyone that gets attacked by Antifa is labeled as fascist or far right. Far right. In the mainstream. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> there's no right now. There's only far right. <laughs> so, yes, I think uh, Andy was called far right, although he considers himself a centrist. Uh, it's the part of the whole denunciation process in order to justify doing what they do. Well, at the end of the day, it's going to hurt. If, if Antifa truly wants to protect uh, our society from falling into a Hitler-style or Mussolini-style fascism, which is a goal that I share with Antifa, I don't want uh, fascism. But if that's the goal, you're actually – they're shooting themselves in the foot by – failing to distinguish between uh, classical liberal philosophy or ideology or worldview versus fascism. And they're very, very different. And anybody like myself, I'm a classical liberal. Uh, I know Antifa would, uh, it don't probably has on the internet, you know, called me a fascist. And yet sure. um, mm-hmm. they're, they're hurting their own cause because if, if you don't distinguish between the classical liberal ideals of limited government and individual freedom and the rule of law and, you know, economic liberty and the, uh, the so-called political liberties of freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, uh, the, you know, the state protection for, uh, the family unit and respect for its rights, uh, respect for parental rights and education. These are all classical liberal ideals and they're very uh, they're the complete opposite of fascism. So if you lump classical liberal and fascist into the same label of far right, then you're just causing confusion and you're not really uh, educating the public about what the free society is all about, which is why Antifa, they're not friends of the free society. They are enemies of the free society because they attack the fundamental freedoms, freedom of expression. Right. I think that their goal is not to educate. I think their goal is to win, to win power and maintain it. That's my- to win and maintain power. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think that's what the Antifa game is 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 all about, and that's why you get this intellectually dishonest distortions by calling classical liberal ideas and classical liberal adherents uh, far right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your organization are. The organization that uh, is sponsoring this podcast essentially steps in and says, okay, we are going to argue this in front of an adjudicating body and point out these contradictions. I assume people call you to do that. That's why I'm, I'm, I guess the burning question is, is that I have to start really is how does Andy get a hold of you or do you get a hold of Andy? Who calls who? How do you guys get involved in these things? Well, roughly roughly half of the cases that we take on, it's because somebody approached us because okay. we've become, uh, you know, we are 10 years old this fall. The Justice Center was right. founded in um, in the fall of 2010. Now this fall okay. will be uh, 10th anniversary uh, celebrations. By the way, we're hosting uh, dinners in Toronto in June and uh, Calgary in October and Vancouver in uh, November and um, mm. a 10th anniversary celebration. And we'll also be um, announcing the, uh, the, the 2020 winner of the George Jonas freedom award 
later this month and uh, celebrating that at, at the dinners in Toronto and Calgary and Vancouver. So because, because we've been around for 10 years and we've become uh, somewhat well-known, at least in some circles, mm-hmm. And so people have heard about us and then they reach out to us and ask for legal help. And then we evaluate those requests. And if, uh, if it falls within our mission and if we have adequate resources, then we, we take it on. And, uh, but if, if it doesn't fall within our mission or if we're short on resources, then, uh, we decline to take it on. Um, right. The, but there's other cases as well where we hear about something in the news and then we think, hey, that's within our mandate. And then we f- contact the person and ask. So I think with the Free Speech Club at UBC, we've had uh, involvement with them for quite some time because uh, there are continually free expression issues at UBC. Uh, they've, they, they had Ben Shapiro in. They had a speaker by the name of Jen Smith, who is extremely controversial. They've got Janice Fiamengo uh, speaking uh, on uh, on January 15th uh, and so on. So we were already in touch with that club. And so- Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. When, the, uh, when the university abruptly canceled uh, the January 29th speaking event, when they did that just a few days before Christmas on December 20th, we were mm. amongst the first to find out about it. And, Okay. We had uh, we had a legal warning letter out to UBC before year's end. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I get it now. I was wondering how you know an American like Andy got a hold of you guys, and it was through the club. Okay. So the club basically, or you knew of them. All right. That I understand. The reason I was asking that is because, of course, Andy is an American, uh, and some of these things that you are covering now, or you are involved with are getting more and more attention down in the United States. And that when I said at the beginning that this is kind of serendipitous time to start the podcast, it's because Andy had just done an article on the Yanev case, which has just been kicked off yes. again. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so he's writing about that at the same time you're involved with his case. And then uh, they kind of relate to what happened at uh, the University of Alberta as well. So it's it's all coming together <laughs> in a glorious confluence of uh, free speech and free uh, expression issues. Well, the, uh, the, uh, the University of Alberta um, uh, court ruling that came out on on January sixth is going to potentially change the landscape when it comes to security fees. Security fees are mm. kind of a I don't know, the evil twin sister of the cancel culture. It seems that if if universities are not canceling events outright, uh, which we've seen a lot of, uh, but if, if they don't cancel outright, what they will often do instead is they will say to uh, you know, a campus group uh, that, okay, if you want to go ahead with this event, well, that's fine, but you have to pay us you know, $10,000 or $20,000 or $30,000 and you cannot hold your event on campus uh, unless you come up with thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which for a small student club with you know maybe ten or twenty members, or you know even if they have a hundred members, uh, how are university students supposed to come up with thirty thousand dollars? And more importantly, why why should they have to if the university is the place for the peaceful exchange of ideas and? where you have frank debate and you have intellectual honesty, you have intellectual inquiry, 
you, you have uh, the back and forth of free speech on campus. Why should anybody wanting to exercise their free speech rights have to pay any money at all to do so? Well, I know that's a good and fair question, but the reason is they don't want to use cancel culture. They just want to make it expensive. You know, it's it's the uh, it's lawfare type uh, tactics, right? You know, we just end up running you out of money until you can't afford to do this anymore. And if uh, if you want to go, that's on, a practical yeah. result. Yeah, I mean, um, well. And it's 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 the dreaded uh, it's safety and security safety and security. You know, mm. I, I heard I heard the term uh, was it was used by the University of Calgary way back in two thousand and eight when the University of Calgary censored the expression of pro life students on campus, uh, telling them that because of safety and security, the students were required to set up their display with the signs facing inwards, mm-hmm. so that nobody could see the signs. <laughs> Nobody walking down yeah. could view the signs. Mm-hmm. And this was in the name of safety and security. You know, fortunately, the students had the courage to refuse that uh, unreasonable and illegal request. And they put up Zany their display. Request. Yeah. Zany could be, uh, that's <laughs> a kind way to describe it. Okay. Um, they... They had previously put up this display. It was it was uh, large photos of uh, of of abortion, showing you know, different kinds of abortions performed at different stages of pregnancy, mm-hmm. and these were set up in a circle with signs facing outwards, so that people passing by had a choice to see all of the signs, or some of the signs, or none of the signs. Mm-hmm. Nobody, contrary to some assertions, nobody was forced to look at these because uh, you could. Walk, you could just avert your gaze and just not look at it. I mean, nobody was required to look at it. It was a ridiculous claim. And because some people felt upset or offended by the expression and they lobbied the university and the university said, well, okay, uh, because of safety and security, you have to turn the signs inwards. That was preceded also. There was a physical blockading of the pro-life display at Mm -hmm. the University of Calgary with people using sheets and towels and whatnot and making it impossible to uh, to have any debate or dialogue or exchange of any kind. Mm-hmm. And that was condoned by campus security. And then the university administration said, okay, well, uh, turn your signs inwards. And the students refused. And then the university found them guilty of non-academic misconduct for having put up a pro-life display on campus with the signs facing outwards. Okay. And then it went to court. And then ultimately in 2014, the, uh, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench rebuked the University of Calgary in the decision of Wilson versus University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. And so we, we obtained a good precedent that the university itself cannot directly censor free expression. Okay. Well, it sounds like the courts are being fair, at least in you know, what you've told me so far. It sounds like you're getting some good response from the courts. Would you say? On, on this issue, it seems to be, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we have so many cases. We certainly do not win uh, all, all of the cases. And mm-hmm. we you know, we lose some of the cases as well, and that's par for the course. I mean, you're not likely to, to win every case that you take on. But I'm, I'm really thrilled by the January 6th ruling of the Alberta Court of Appeal because this mm-hmm. was about security fees. Security fees are the, the evil twin sister to, uh, to cancellation, right? So right. when universities don't cancel outright, they say, well, okay, you can go ahead, but you've got to pay us thousands of dollars. 
Okay. And so what happened at the University of Alberta back in March of 2015, so almost five years ago, the uh, Campus Pro-Life Club wanted to put up an event and they juxtaposed, they had 18 large photos that were put up in a circle. And so there were nine large photos showing fetal development from conception to birth juxtaposed with nine large photos of abortions performed at the these nine different stages of pregnancy. So you had 18 large photos put up in a circle. This was authorized and approved by the university that, that they had a certain space for two days in March. They were a registered campus club. Uh, so all the T's were crossed, uh, the I's were dotted, everything was was good to go. And a few days before this display, the Twitter mob and the, the Facebook crowd started planning openly and publicly started planning to disrupt and shut down the display and make it impossible to uh, for, for the pro-life students to to get their message out or, or to engage in dialogue with, with other students. Mm-hmm. Two problems with that. First of all, the University of Alberta Code of Student Behavior expressly states that uh, you cannot disrupt or obstruct or blockade a university-related activity or event, which clearly this campus event was was clearly a university-related activity. So first of all, you cannot obstruct or interrupt or shut down somebody else's expression. It's contrary to the Code of Student Behavior. Secondly, there is also an offense to plan and promote and organize the commission of an offense under the code of student behavior. So even before the students actually shut down the display, which they ended up doing, but even just to plot and plan and promote the shutting down of the display was also contrary to the code of student behavior. Right. Now, when you're talking about doing this openly and publicly, I assume you're talking about social media or something like that, something that was visible and recordable. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. These people were openly talking on social media about shutting down the pro-life display. Campus security did nothing, even though they could very easily ascertain the identity of these people and could have charged them right there, right then and there, could have said, you know what, you're in violation of the code of student behavior because you're planning an illegal activity, illegal uh, in that it, it, it's contrary to the code of student behavior, which students have agreed to abide by and comply with when they become students at the University of Alberta and pay their tuition fees. Part of the deal mm-hmm. is you agree to abide by the code of student behavior. And, and if you don't, uh, you should appropriately be disciplined. And in serious cases, even to the point of being expelled from the university, that's only fair and just and right if you're violating the code of student behavior that you've agreed to. Mm-hmm. And campus security did nothing. They didn't warn these people. Uh, on the positive side, the university's president at that time, Indira Samarasakura, uh, she issued a public statement saying that pro-life students have a legal right to express their opinions on campus in a peaceful manner, and that uh, you know there's there's tolerance for all views and opinions at the University of Alberta. Uh, again, a, a good statement, but. It was mm-hmm. entirely ignored by campus security a few days later because what happened was uh, a big dozens of students and also some uh, off off campus people 
uh, NDP member of parliament, Linda Duncan, uh, was amongst oh, the crowd. Uh, and, and, and profs, uh, some professors were openly, actively agitating for the pro-life display to be shut down. So we had students and profs and off-campus people. They came, they swarmed the display. They held up uh, towels and sheets and, uh, and banners to block uh, visibility. They were using megaphones. They were shouting. And they made it next to impossible to have any kind of intelligent dialogue about abortion or, you know, about the right to life or about whatever, all, all the questions that, that the group was, uh, was seeking to discuss. Okay. Go ahead. The, uh, I just, <laughs> no, I was just thinking, okay, well, that's great. You win a decision like this. Uh, what do you anticipate happening? Not necessarily from a legal perspective. Uh, that is uh, great. You've set the precedent. Don't they just do it again and say, you know, come and get us, you know. Well, here's our goal is to shut these things down. But here here's yeah. the interesting dynamic though because this this all of this was just background on on um what happened right in March of 2015. Mm-hmm. And okay. so this is necessary context for the security fee issue. So what happened was the a bunch of students and others shut down the display. The students were not in any way disciplined by the University of Alberta even though campus security at the moment was telling these uh, blockaders and obstructors that, you know, you are violating the code of student conduct and, uh, but, but they did nothing. And then, um, and, and so there's no disciplinary proceedings taken in spite of the fact that there's abundant photographic evidence, video evidence, campus security knows the identities of the people engaged in, in the misconduct, right? There, there's no secret there. There's a ton of evidence. Everybody knows who did it. Uh, all the evidence is there, including uh, people boasting openly on Facebook and Twitter about how they participated in uh, and succeeded in shutting down uh, the expression that they disagree with. So next, um, so nothing's done. The following, uh, roughly nine months later, um, Alberta Pro-Life asks to put up a two-day display in February of 2016. And now the university... Um, says, well, okay, but pay us $17,500 in security fees first. Mm-hmm. And so this is, uh, this is, it's, it's the same as, as, as council culture. I mean, if you're going to ask right. uh, a small number of starving students to come up with $17,000, uh, you, you might as well just declare that the event is canceled and is not going ahead. I mean, it's rather fake, phony, and insincere to even pretend that that you've got any commitment to free speech if you're going to slap a seventeen thousand five hundred dollar security fee on a bunch of penniless students. <laughs> yes, I think they understand that, but I don't think they care. But so, that's just my well, maybe opinion. they're going to care now because what happened next was the, uh-huh. the students sued the <laughs> university. Um, there were two issues, okay. uh, and soon we lost in the in the Court of Queen's Bench actually on both issues. The first issue was that the the imposition of the security uh, the seventeen thousand five hundred dollars security fee was was wrong and was not justified. That was the first issue. We lost on that um, in the first round. The second issue was that the university was wrong to refuse to discipline the students. And uh, we lost on that as well. So we appealed it to the Alberta Court of Appeal. 
And uh, after a very long wait, uh, on January the 6th, we got the unanimous ruling from the Court of Appeal, um, one judgment by um, by Justice Watson, and then a concurring judgment by two other judges. But they were unanimous in saying that the University of Alberta was not justified in imposing a security fee of $17,500 on the student. And they further said, and this is new in Canada, mm. they further said okay. that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms applies to protect the free expression rights of students on campus. That's new? I thought they would be protected because they're Canadian. I mean, why is it, is it just the fact that they well, specifically there, said it or what? The courts in British Columbia and Ontario to date have said that um, the charter does not apply to universities and that um, you know students cannot claim nuts. Uh, charter rights. And their ground, it's kind of it's interesting and curious. You know, their ground is that that even though universities get the majority of their funding from tax dollars, and in many cases universities are created by statute, right? Uh-huh. They're, um, they're still private entities. So oh, that they're, argument. Ugh. They're entitled to do whatever they want, including trampling on free speech, including canceling events, including imposing $17,500 security fees. They are allowed to do whatever they want because they are private entities and the charter does not apply to them. And that's the argument that that's... so far has won the day in BC and Ontario. Really? But now here, here thus far, yeah. And, but now here in, um, in Alberta, We've got a court of appeal ruling, unanimous, three to zero, that the charter applies to defend the free speech rights of students on campus. That I, I'm kind of, you know, taken aback by that because, you know, I really all you have to do then is start a company and the charter doesn't apply to you. That That's what the uptake of this is, you know. Well, I'm a private company. Well, that, I that is true. It, you know, I can override anybody's rights because I'm not. A public entity that doesn't make well, sense. And, that, and that's that's fair game for something like you know Walmart or mm-hmm. uh, the Coca Cola Corporation. I mean, the charter doesn't apply to them. They're not government. What? They don't have to. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all Canadians. The charter. Am I thinking about some other document here? You know, well, you're Canadian. I'm, you're, I'm glad. You're I'm glad you raised. I'm glad you raised the question because there are charter-like obligations that are imposed on private actors through human rights legislation, but that's different. Uh, So, for example, every province plus the federal government has human rights uh, legislation, which would apply to, say, Walmart or McDonald's or, uh, you know, any corporation cannot discriminate on the basis of, you know, race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, uh, sexual orientation, and now more recently, we've got gender expression and gender identity added, uh, which is hugely problematic because it brings us to a place where we're legally obligated to uh, refer to people by by whatever pronouns that they choose for themselves. Oh, we forgot a- to state that at the beginning. Sorry, my 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 preferred pronouns are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, what are your preferred ahead. pronouns, Kevin? I don't have any at the moment. I gotta, I get next show. I'll get, I'll get the, I'll get it together. Okay. All right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll think hard about it and come up with okay. my preferred pronouns as well for uh, okay. for the next podcast. So, um, 
Now, I'm glad you brought up the question because there, there's a difference between um, the human rights legislation that makes it illegal for corporations to discriminate based on various grounds. Uh, and, I th- you know, it applies to landlords and it applies to employers. You know, when you're in the workplace, you can't discriminate on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's human rights legislation. And uh, but that's not the charter. Uh, the charter yeah. is, you know, the the most active part of our constitution. And the charter applies to government. And so governments must um, uh, governments must respect the fundamental freedoms of expression and association and religion and conscience and the the right of parents to raise and educate their own children as they deem best, et cetera, et cetera. Governments have to respect rights and freedoms. Uh, Private corporations uh, must also do so, uh, but that's under human rights legislation, not under the charter. But don't they meet then in the court? Because if you take a private corporation to court, the court is a government entity, and therefore they must apply the charter to the private organization. Isn't that how it works? No? They have yes. to apply human rights legislation to the not the charter, not the charter. So the charter does not apply to, say, Walmart. Walmart uh, can disregard the charter entirely. Walmart cannot disregard human rights legislation. So human rights legislation says that Walmart must treat its employees as well as customers. Uh, Walmart must legally refrain from discriminating on the basis of race, gender, ethnicity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, so Walmart has legal obligations to comply with human rights yeah, legislation. Okay. Walmart has no obligations whatsoever to comply with the charter. And, and they're not, they're not entirely the same obligations. I mean, the, the government has to respect and uphold my freedom of speech on a public sidewalk or in a public park, for example. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walmart has no obligation to, uphold anybody's uh, free speech rights or, you know, religious freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an entirely different context, right? If, if somebody goes into uh, Walmart wanting to do some, you know, political speech or religious speech, or if they want to have a religious ceremony, or if they want to, uh, you know, shout or chant or this or that or the other thing, they have no legal rights to do so within Walmart. It's not a public okay. sidewalk. It's private property. Walmart's only legal obligations are to not discriminate against customers or against employees based on the race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. Walmart cannot discriminate. However, unlike government, Walmart has no obligation to uphold or facilitate somebody's free speech rights or somebody's um, you know, f- freedom of association or whatever else. And with these organizations like universities that have one foot out the door and one foot in, that's where the courts are ruling now. Is that it? Or they've recently come up with this idea? No, that's that- exactly that's exactly why you get. You know, there are there are strong arguments on both sides of the equation. I think that this is why you get contradictory court rulings in different provinces. And we've got BC and Ontario saying that the charter does not apply to universities not even to the um, to to uh, support the free speech rights of students on campus and they've got the Alberta Court of Appeals saying unanimously that the charter does apply 
to students at universities uh, because, and now here's the reasoning in, in the in the January 6th Court of Appeal ruling, they say because the university is acting like government when it uh, pr- creates and, and provides for a space for debate and for expression. And the court looked at the University of Alberta created by statute uh, around 1905 when Alberta was started and the uh, government created the University of Alberta by legislation and the government has mandated that the university has to educate the younger generations and the one of the primary methods for educating the young people is through freedom of expression and so the university is a governmental entity uh, or carrying out a governmental activity when it creates a public space for students and other people to express their views and to have their debates and so on. And so the university Mm -hmm. was wrong to have not thought this through. And the university was wrong in having uh, targeted the pro-life group as being uh, 100% responsible for this $17,500 security fee. Okay. So this ruling applies to Alberta, and it doesn't override anything that's happened in in British Columbia or Ontario. That's that's correct. That's what I'm understanding. That's correct. Okay. Other than it sort of gives guidance, you know, to which way the wind is blowing legally, I guess. But then other provinces, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, Quebec, the uh, the four Atlantic provinces, etc., uh, they can look to the Alberta Court of Appeal ruling. And they can look to the BC and Ontario uh, court rulings as well. And uh, they'll be fighting it out mm-hmm. in those provinces, um, which makes for an interesting situation. We'll have to wait and see whether the University of Alberta uh, tries to appeal the decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, if, if they are going to do that, they would likely be pointing to discrepancies in the law between um, – between Alberta versus BC and Ontario, and they would say, hey, we need a national ruling to provide some clarity on this. Okay. You think that's going to happen? You don't I know. have no idea. Right. I have no okay. idea. Uh, it, uh, it would cost, wouldn't it? That's the thing. The university, if they wanted to, could push it that far. They don't care about court costs. The University okay. of Calgary has spent has spent bare bare minimum of a hundred thousand, but but easily two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars, fighting uh, several battles. Uh, first, they they fought the case that I was involved with, uh, the Wilson case, where the university had uh, you know found students guilty of non academic misconduct uh, simply for having you know put up a stationary pro life display on campus. Uh, that whole uh, court case that dragged on for eight years, and uh, the, the university. I, you know, obviously, I haven't seen the the bills that the university's lawyers rendered to the university, but I've mm-hmm. seen lots of lawyers' bills in the last twenty years since I was called to the bar. That case was easily a um, hundred thousand or more that the university paid for Wilson. Excuse me. And there was another case, Pridgen, which was a few years prior to that. Um, Keith Pridgen and Stephen Pridgen were brothers taking a pre-law course 
Uh, it was a law and society course at the University of Calgary. And they created a Facebook post. They and some other students created a, a Facebook, uh, a blog or a Facebook post or, or site uh, whose title was, I no longer fear hell. I took a course with Aruna Mithra. And I'm not sure if I'm getting the name right, but uh, um, they were critical of this prof uh, for being just incompetent and not knowing her materials, showing up ill-prepared and so on and so forth. And Oh, not for being a Satanist. Okay. Got it. <laughs> okay. I was wondering. Yeah. No, no, it was, it was, a, it was an attempt at humor. I mean, I, I laughed out loud okay. the first time I heard it, right? I no longer yeah. fear hell. I, okay. I survived a course with uh, Aruna Mithra. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, so it was the long title of the Facebook right, uh, okay. post or page, page, I think the Facebook page. And this was bad because. Well, the, the university of Calgary, gosh, they, they didn't have a leg to stand on from, from, from the get go, but they said it was, it was offensive and it was, it was, um, well, it was. Uh, it, it, was sure. it was. In, it was. It was. It was offensive, and it was inappropriate, and it was unbecoming. This was at a time in 2008. Uh, the University of Calgary at that time did not have a very specific, detailed code of conduct, and so the code of conduct mm-hmm. had some something in there, like you know, st- behavior that is uh, unbecoming of a university student, or it was something vague like that. And on that basis, code of conduct. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that's. Uh- I know that from uh, Vox Day's uh, book. Oh, yes, okay. yes. You're you know, talking about uh, um, Code uh, of social, social Justice Warriors Always Lie? Yeah, yeah. SJWs Always Lie. Yeah, they, as soon as you see the Code of Conduct, run. Run. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the entryism for uh, for uh, the SJWs. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, so, uh, so the Pridgen brothers were found guilty um, – of non-academic misconduct by the University of Calgary. And they were, uh, on threat of expulsion, they were ordered to provide this abject uh, letter of apology, even though what they actually said in regard to the prof was was pretty mild and innocuous. It was a comment like, um, you know, I guess, uh, oh, you also got 65% on your midterm. You know, everybody got 65% on the midterm. And somebody said, well, I guess you just got lazy and gave everybody 65%. It was those kinds of innocuous comments. I mean, they weren't, uh, they weren't cruel or vicious. They were just that, uh, you know, she was logically abrasive and she didn't know her stuff. And, you know, the, 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 these kinds of comments, which I'm told are far less harsh than you've got this rate my professor website Right, or rate my teacher, yeah. And I think those are anonymous, but some of those posts apparently are quite scathing. And this yeah, was I've on, seen a few. This was on a Facebook page, so I guess it was easier to hunt down the offending parties who had expressed their their negative opinions about this professor. Right, okay. But there, you know, getting back to the legal bills, so they, the University of Calgary, um, so they found uh, Keith and Keith Pridgen and Stephen Pridgen, the two brothers, they found them guilty of non-academic misconduct uh, along with other students. Most of the other students just kind of apologized and went along with it. But uh, Keith, uh, Keith and Stephen Pridgen said, no, uh, this is uh, it's not right to be subjected to this kind of, you know, humiliation on threat of expulsion of having to sign an abject letter of, you know, groveling letter of apology as if you've, you've done some horrible thing when in fact you have not. Mm -hmm. So they had the, 
the courage to uh, to stand up to that. So that ended up in court, and the University of Calgary lost in the Court of Queen's Bench, and uh, the court there said the university is not a charter-free zone. So we kind of had the beginnings of this idea in Alberta that the charter applies to uh, to, to universities. And okay. then the University of Calgary took it to the Alberta Court of Appeal and lost again. So between the Pridgen case and the Wilson case, uh, University of Calgary has, has spent easily uh, $200,000, you know, perhaps $300,000 on legal bills. So I can assure you that the University of Alberta is not going to care about costs because uh, they get free money from taxpayers. They don't have to raise it themselves. Which makes it seem to me like they're public government institution if they're getting taxpayers money but well it can be dangerous kevin if you let that become determinative of uh okay. of whether something's public or private you can run into problems where well in fact you do run into these problems where you've got say the canada summer jobs case uh oh yeah, yeah. court action there where you've got the federal government is refusing to give a canada summer jobs grant to um to a christian Bible camp, uh, which you know wants to, which has a policy also of admitting low-income kids that can't afford it, can come out for the week and enjoy uh, a week of Bible camp, uh, and can enjoy all the you know canoeing and roasting marshmallows and uh, archery and all the usual things that come with uh, with the uh, summer camp experience. Uh, you've you've got the federal government reviewing the doctrines of the churches. And if those doctrines are not acceptable to the federal government, because uh, the federal government has a has different opinions and beliefs about sexuality than what these churches do, and the churches are then denied a grant, uh, a Canada Summer Jobs grant. So my whole point yeah, there okay. is that we have to be cautious and not, not just say, well, okay, if you're getting government funding, then... Um, you are a government. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to go there. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But uh, it seems to me we have gone there with the case you just cited. So that's the way they're trying to go anyway, isn't it? No, I'm not well, sure. Well, we see the same thing there. there it's, it's very scary what's happening in Canada t- today in 2020. Uh, and just the, the, the trend in the past decade is towards a, uh, coercive imposition of uh, an orthodox view, a correct view on human sexuality. I'll give you the three examples would be the the Bill 24 case in Alberta, um, where you had the gay straight alliances that must be established in all schools, including Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, Christian, private, public, charter. Every school in Alberta must have a gay straight alliance if one student asks for one. And further, uh, another law made it illegal for teachers and principals to inform parents about what was going on in these clubs and who was speaking there and, you know, what kind of pornography or other content the kids might be exposed to uh, through these clubs. Uh, so that's one example where uh, second one is the Canada Summer Jobs. And the third one is some adoption cases where the uh, adoption agency, a government agency, has said uh, if you are an evangelical Christian or, or Catholic, and if you believe in, uh, if you have a traditional religious perspective on sexuality, and you think that sexuality is 
you know, holy or sacred or whatever. And the, the only appropriate sexual expression is uh, within a marriage between one man and one woman. And if that's your opinion, then you're not allowed to adopt kids uh, because you need to agree with the, uh, with the government's orthodoxy, which is the idea that uh, all sexual behavior is totally fine as long as the, um, uh, as long as the parties are consenting to it, right? Which are two different opinions about sex. And in a free society, the government shouldn't be taking sides on that by saying, well, okay, here, you know, the latter view that, that all sexual activity is good, provided that it's consensual, that that is the doctrine that everybody is forced to subscribe to, which is in my three examples is what is exactly what's happening. You've got a government pressure that you have to agree with the government's ideology on sexuality. Uh, if you are to uh, be allowed to adopt children or uh, be allowed to uh, send your kids to the school of your choice, or if you want uh, a lousy $5,000 Canada summer jobs grant, you've got to agree with our view on yeah. sexuality. Yeah. This, the, this goes back to the way uh, they read in sexual rights uh, into the charter though, isn't it? They just sort of made it up on a whole cloth uh, from what I understand going back to that. But I guess that's a whole long story that I don't think we have time for right now. Well, we can cover. I think you're Maybe. referring to the Vren decision of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada in 1998. Yeah. And uh, definitely we're, uh, we're not going to have time today to cover that one, but, uh, but make a note of it so we can talk about the, the Vren decision and the, uh, the implications. I'll put it in the show notes. Right on. So there you go. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we've covered a lot of ground here. In fact, I think we don't have any other topics for other podcasts. What do you think, John? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no? there'll be lots there. We are, um, we're expecting a ruling on the uh, Servatius case in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, this concerned the uh, uh, forcing children to participate in an Aboriginal smudging ceremony, uh, which involved waving smoke over the uh, children for the purpose of cleansing their spirits of sage. negative sage. negative energy. Yeah, yeah, smoke from mm-hmm. burging sage that is fanned to cleanse the furniture in the classroom and the children of bad energy. And there's a mother who objected to her kids being forced to participate in that. And okay. we're expecting a court ruling on that on um, on Wednesday the eighth. So next week uh, we'll certainly have that to discuss. Oh yeah, okay. No, I'm kind of joking. It's just that you know this is our first podcast. We were kind of okay. What are we going to talk about? <laughs> we end up talking about just about everything, you know. So that's okay. That's a that's a good introduction to uh, the Justice Center. And uh, I think we're getting close to our hour here. I don't know whether uh, we should touch on anything else other than to sort of, again, reintroduce ourselves. I'm Kevin Steele. I I used to work for uh, the Alberta Report News Magazine. That's actually where I got to know John. And then I was working for the Western Standard. And then I did a bunch of freelancing. And I ended up here. And, uh, well, John, of course, his history is well known. He's been in the public eye since his days back at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation when I got to know him. And uh, we hope to do this podcast weekly. Is that uh, your understanding, John? Absolutely. Let's do it once a week. Yeah, once a week should be good. We're going to fumble around getting this one up. Uh, we got to get some web space and 
find a host and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, once we get going, we hope to do this once a week and uh, post ourselves on uh, places like iTunes and iHeartRadio and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anything else, John, you want to cover any housekeeping issues you want to state on our inaugural podcast here? Well, I just want to say thanks, Kevin, for uh, being the facilitator for this. I, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I've enjoyed our, uh, our discussion and I'm uh, already looking forward to next week. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thanks very much. You've been listening to the Justice Center with John Carpe. Thanks a lot. We'll be posting this and talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.